This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Good evening and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... When impunity continues in a country, we will definitely see a repeat of such crimes or of such acts and conducts. That's Siun Bakari of Amnesty International on how the killing of a student for alleged blasphemy, blasphemy reflects the delicate balance between the Nigeria's Christians and Muslims. Details coming up. And also, suspected jihadists have carried out three attacks in Burkina Faso. These stories and more on African News Tonight. But first, our top story. In a fortified tent guarded by peacekeeping forces, hundreds of lawmakers elected a new president in Somalia yesterday, capping a violent election season that threatened to push the Horn of African nation towards a breakdown. The selection of Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud, a former president in Mogadishu, ended a bitter election period marred by corruption, a president's attempt to cling to power, and heavy fighting in the streets. Mr. Mahmoud defeated three dozen candidates after three, downs, uh, three rounds of voting, including President Mohammed Abdullahi Mohammed, who drew condemnation after extending his term last year. I talked to VOA Somali service journalist Mohammed Olad on how people in Somalia are reacting to the new victor. Uh, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud uh, was a president in Somalia before. It is another first time. And uh, people have been celebrating uh, last night uh, for his uh, uh, re-election, uh, saying that at least a person who has an experience of four years of, of being president and uh, Watching over what was going on in the country and all political crisis from uh, from from uh, 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 another five years, so saying having the experience of being a president and watching over everything for five years, coming back is the is is, is a good sign. Somali say he may fix his prob the problems he he faced during his presidency, and um, and they expect him uh, to fulfill his promises, including saying that he will. Uh, uh, do whatever he left and 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 and, and finished. Mohammed, uh, so has uh, President uh, Mohammed Abdullahi Mohammed conceded? Uh, Mohammed Abdullahi uh, Mohammed, the former president, stood in front of the parliamentarians and he said that he will collaborate with the new president and he welcomed him, saying that um, a lot of challenges and hard tasks is waiting him ahead. But he was happy that the new president is in place, and he considered uh, 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 the, the 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 success of Mo the victory of Muhammad of of Hassan Sheikh Mohammed. So it was very surprising to everybody. But something uh, people were expect was ex was not expecting because the, the guy has been uh, very rival and very hostile to the current uh, opposition guys, and uh, but. But since when he was uh, uh, trying to, uh, and he and he and he was having the this marathon uh, discussion, this marathon election to rewin, uh, he wasn't expecting to lose. But anyway, 
uh, it was very democratic, open, and everybody watching, and he considered in front of everybody. So it was a very uh, powerful and very smooth transition. That means uh, he was very graceful in defeat, uh, Mohammed. So uh, the capital was closed on Sunday. Uh, uh, maybe through your sources, is the curfew lifted now and everything is, is peaceful back in Somalia? Uh, this morning when I contacted to the Somali capital, to our stringers in Somali capital, they told me that uh, movements has started and uh, 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 the curfew which was imposed on the city uh, partially lifted, but some troops are still seen uh, positioning themselves in one of the, uh, around one of the main injections in the capital uh, to tighten the security in case Al-Shabaab tries to destabilize uh, the city and uh, disrupt this uh, uh, moment, momentum and celebration within this uh, uh, by, 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 the, by the Somali population in different places in, the, in, in Mogadishu. And uh, so movement has, uh, is gradually restarting buses and tra public transportation and uh, 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 movement of people and goods are, are, are just gradually starting to be normal. That was VOA Sobani Service journalist Mohamed Olad. Reversing his predecessor's withdrawal, U.S. President Joe Biden signed an order today to deploy several hundred U.S. troops to Somalia amid heightened concerns about al-Shabaab extremists. Reuters quoted a high-ranking U.S. official as calling the move a repositioning of forces already in theater who have traveled in and out of Somalia on an episodic basis since the previous administration made the decision to withdraw. Al-Qaeda-linked insurgent group Al-Shabaab is seeking to topple the government and establish its own rule in Somalia based on its strict interpretation of Islamic Sharia law. The group has been particularly active in the run-up to yesterday's presidential election, carrying out a number of terror attacks. Suspected jihadists carried out three attacks in Burkina Faso that left around 40 people dead, many of them civilian volunteers with the army. The French news agency AFP cited local sources and security officials about the attacks in the northern region of the Sahel and in the Campo Pianga near Burkina Faso's southern eastern border with Togo and Benin. Most of the dead belong to volunteers of the Defense of the Fatherland, a civilian auxiliary force set up in December 2019 to take over some basic security duties from the army. A security source said there has been a series of attacks which have mainly targeted volunteers. One of the poorest countries in the world, Burkina Faso, has been battered by jihadist raids since 2015 when insurgents began mounting cross-border attacks from Mali. A veteran politician nicknamed Iron Lady for her ability to compete in Kenya's male-dominated system has been chosen as the running mate of one of the top two candidates for president. Martha Karua, who ran for president in 2013, called her selection by Raila Odinga a moment for the woman of Kenya. Odinga added that after 60 years of independence, we cannot excuse the male domination of the executive. Odinga's main rival, William Ruto, who chose a wealthy businessman, Rigati Gachagua, as his running mate yesterday. 
Both running mates are Kikuyus, Kenya's most populous ethnic group, as Odinga and Ruto, who hail from other communities, seek to attract Kikuyu votes. Drought is now is not new to the Horn of Africa, but experts say the record one killing crops and cattle across Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia has underscored the increasing frequency of drought due to climate change. In Ethiopia, the UN's World Food Program is not just feeding those affected but also working to help drought-proof communities for the longer term. Linda Giftash reports from Godo, Ethiopia. Hawu Abdi Wale has lived through many droughts in her 70 years of life. But until now, she says she's never seen four consecutive rainy seasons fail. Wale says she has seen a big difference. In her early years, she says people used to see more rains and animals produce more milk. There is a big, big difference. The World Food Program is helping her village not only survive the crisis, but rebuild for the long term. They're digging meter-wide semicircle holes in the barren soil to capture runoff water when rains return so that grass can grow more effectively and feed their surviving livestock. Forward-looking interventions are desperately needed. Scientists say climate change is the culprit for these more frequent, severe conditions. Abu Bakr Saleh Babakar is with the World Meteorological Organization in Ethiopia. The climate in this region is driven by what is happening in the neighboring ocean. There are studies that indicate that this is the war- fastest warming part of the tropical ocean system. So it is warming rapidly during the past 100 years. And this warming, as I said, it, was, it is associated with the dryness of the marsh June season. It also results in flooding when the rain does return. These events aren't just examples of climate change, but inequality. Haptamu Adam is a climate policy expert in Addis Ababa. When you compare from the emission level from our contribution to the climate change, uh, it is very uh, uncomparable because most of the emissions are emitted from developed countries. Yet developing countries like Ethiopia don't have the funds to fight the effects. The World Meteorological Organization estimates that sub-Saharan Africa will need up to $50 billion annually to adapt to climate change. Without it, the number of people displaced and in need of aid will only continue to rise. Ali Hussein is with the World Food Program in the Somali region. We need to build the community resistance to these shocks. And in that line, we want to put more emphasis on these regreening activities, such as half moons, to regenerate this dry desert area to become a Greenland in the future, which can be more useful to both communities and as well as livestock. These projects around the Somali region are showing success and could be replicated to help more people. Ibrahim Korbad Farah is an elder of a village that saw its land restored with the construction of a channel that is effectively diverting streams and rainwater. He says they've experienced numerous advantages. They're now able to farm and use the grass for livestock, as well as thatches for their houses. He says they also use the water for drinking, especially for the livestock. While adaptation is crucial to communities' health and survival, climate scientists warn reducing emissions remains a priority in preventing even worse conditions in the future. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Godet, Ethiopia. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington.
South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority, the NPA, has reassured citizens that it is on track to bring cases against those who stole public money when Jacob Zuma was president between 2009 and 2018. Zuma allegedly helped orchestrate a plan dubbed State Capture, whereby he and others in the ruling African National Congress, the ANC, plundered an estimated 1 trillion rands or $100 billion from state-owned enterprises. South Africans are concerned that no one's is going to be punished for almost bankrupting their country. Darren Taylor has more. South Africans fear the NPA doesn't have the resources and, more importantly, the political backing of the ANC to prosecute the perpetrators of what financial experts call one of the biggest economic crimes in history. A commission of inquiry has found that Zuma and some ANC cabinet ministers, in collaboration with three Indian businessmen brothers, AJ, Atul and Rajesh Gupta, put friends in charge of government corporations to loot them. Several of these national assets, such as electricity provider ESCOM, have been virtually destroyed. I know the public's frustrated. They need to be frustrated. We're extremely frustrated because this is complex and it's difficult. NPA Deputy Director Advocate Anton Alberts told reporters that state capture cases are going to take time, but prosecutions are already happening. And I think the notion that nothing has happened on state capture is just simply incorrect. Not enough has happened, that is correct, but a lot has happened. I mean, we've charged 65 people alone in the last three years. We've enrolled over 20 cases. We've declared over 80. We've frozen 5.9 billion rands worth of assets. And all of that has laid the foundation for what's able to happen now. Albert says the smaller cases that have left citizens feeling cheated are mere previews to what will begin within the next six months. The NPA's prosecution of nine major cases involving key figures in the alleged state capture plot. We don't discuss the details of our cases publicly until they go to court for obvious reasons, but these are seminal cases in the sense that they struck at the heart of state capture, and state capture struck at the heart of the rule of law in this country. We have the evidence in these cases Albert says it's reasonable to assume that one of these cases will focus on the corruption and mismanagement at ESCOM. Today, the company can't keep the lights on and South Africa's often plunged into darkness. The blackouts are costing the continent's most industrialized economy billions of dollars. The State Capture Commission found that former Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown helped Zuma and the Guptas to pillage ESCOM's coffers. Albert says the NPA is cooperating with current ESCOM management to build a case. This isn't a, a haphazard shotgun approach. It's a coordinated approach between the various agencies and various entities in this country in line with their mandate. And so the recognition that the crimes that have allegedly been committed at ESCOM and continue to be committed are undermining South Africa's development prospects. So this strikes right at the heart of the future of our country. And if we don't uh, end Zuma describes the allegations of state capture against him as a political plot directed by current President Cyril Ramaphosa. All ANC officials implicated in the alleged scheme deny wrongdoing. The Guptas, now based in Dubai, describe the work they did in South Africa 
as legitimate business. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The Global Conference on the Elimination of Child Labour focused today on strategies and actions to tackle the lingering problem, saying failure to do so is equal to failing mankind. The conference in Durban, South Africa, is taking place at a time when only three years are left for countries to reach the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal. Tuso Kumalo reports from Johannesburg. Day two of the six-day conference saw delegates taking a Zoom to look into ways to make advances towards the goal at a time when countries are struggling to provide decent work and youth employment. There was also a clear call for countries to accelerate progress and achieve impact on a large scale. Speaking to delegates during a high-level panel discussion on setting global priorities, Global Children's Rights Campaigner and Nobel Peace Laureate Kailash Satyarti said failing to invest enough on protection, health and education of children was equal to failing humankind. Liberation for education and education for liberation. Education is empowerment. Education is key to liberation. Physical, mental, sexual, all kind of liberation. Education is the key in that sense. So education cannot be compromised. These were the same sentiments echoed by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa when he set the tone of the conference as it opened Sunday. Child labor is an enemy of our children's development. It is an enemy of our children's future. And it is an enemy of progress. It is also an enemy of nationhood. Zingiswalosi president of the Congress of the South African Trade Unions, said all hands will need to be on deck for child labor to be completely eradicated. It is not going to be a government agenda alone to drive uh, the elimination of child labor at the level of policy. And it, it has to be an inclusive process to ensure that workers are involved from the onset. It's going to take business because they are the employers of children in the labor market. According to the International Labor Organization, there are over 160 million children in labor across the world, with half doing work that puts their health, safety, and moral development in danger. The organization cautions that a further 8.9 million children will be added to this list by the end of this year if action is not taken fast. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. Authorities in Nigeria's Sokoto state are enforcing a 24-hour curfew imposed Saturday to quell protests demanding the release of suspects in the killing of college student Deborah Yakubu. Yakubu was beaten and burned by fellow students Thursday for alleged blasphemous comments about the Muslim prophet Muhammad in a WhatsApp group. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The 24-hour curfew imposed by state authorities held firm Sunday. Major streets in Sogoda State were calm and deserted. Churches and businesses were also closed. Police and military patrols were on the streets to enforce the curfew. The curfew followed Saturday's protests where hundreds of residents demanded for release of two suspects arrested by the police the day before in connection with the murder of a female student, Deborah Yakubu. 
The protesters attacked two Catholic churches, destroyed vehicles, and damaged many shops in the metropolis before security officials dispersed them with tear gas. Yakubu was a 200-level student of the Shehu Shagari College of Education. She was stoned to death and her body was burned near the school Thursday amid accusations of blasphemy by fellow students. The killing has since been criticized by many religious and rights groups, including Amnesty International, which described the incident as, quote, sad and very disturbing, end quote. It highlights division along religious lines in Africa's most populous country, which strikes a delicate balance between its Christian and Muslim populations. Sheung Bakari is an Amnesty International spokesperson. When impunity continues in a country, we will definitely see a repeat of such crimes or of such acts and conducts. This is not the first time that we've read or heard that um, things like this continue to happen in the 21st century. Nigeria's president, Muhammadu Buhari, has strongly condemned the murder of Yakubu and demanded an impartial probe into her death. Yakubu was buried Saturday in her hometown in Tunga Magajia in Nigeria's central Niger state. But security intelligence groups are warning of a possible spike in violence across many more northern states. Authorities in faraway Kaduna state prohibited protests in relation to religious activities Saturday to prevent the violence from escalating. On Sunday, the security consulting group Eon's intelligence warned of possible protests in northeastern Borno State over another alleged blasphemous comment posted on Facebook. The group advised residents to avoid travel within the state. Martin Obono, a human rights lawyer, faults the Nigerian Penal Code, which criminalizes blasphemy. One of the things that is causing the crisis of religious crisis in Nigeria is the fact that people feel like that blasphemy, blasphemy is a criminal offense, and they also feel like the law is slower to take its course. And if we expunge that from our laws, people will begin to think and realize that. Nigeria is a secular state and people have the freedom to express themselves. Nigeria's secular law punishes blasphemy by up to two years in prison under the section known as religious insult. But in the north, where a more conservative population favors the religious or Sharia law, blasphemy is punishable by death. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Zimbabwe's new measure to reverse the economy is not working. More from Bulawayo. President Emerson Mnangagwa announced measures to reverse an economic downturn characterized by hyperinflation, the local currency's plunge, and growing public unrest. Suspension of bank lending is already hitting hard, particularly in the agricultural sector. Industry players such as blue chip agricultural processing firm Dairy Bodies called off a scheduled dividend payout shareholders. In a letter to sugarcane farmers that the VOA obtained, Tonga Duhulet, a South African sugar manufacturing subsidiary, indicates it is suspending all payments for the 2022 to 2023 season that it makes through bank access to loans. Smallholder farmers attempting to purchase agricultural implements say they were refused payment using local currency. A company called Fivet has a letter in circulation saying they are realigning their business in tandem with the rapidly depreciating local currency and now demand cash upfront. Farmers are apprehensive about payment in the local currency for their crops deliveries to Green Marketing Board after harvest, given that they are compelled to pay for imports of herbicides and farm equipment in foreign currency. 
economic analyst Gift Mgano says suspending lending by banks is signing a death sentence for the economy. So, as you see now, these companies which are issuing statements, they use finance from the banking sector as loans to bridge their production or to pre-finance production. But now, because that capability has been taken away, particularly if you look at Tonga, they cannot continue to guarantee that funding of farmers. And now they are now saying, we are suspending. Mogano says business prospects for the country are bleak. So what it means is that we are going to see bankrupts across all the value chains. Farmers are going to be bankrupt. They can't go back to production. Business are going to be bankrupt because they're not going to be having a supply of raw materials. So what does it mean at a macro level? It means unemployment. It means deindustrialization. It means going into recession. It means aggregate demand is going to form. You are leaving room for South African companies and Zambians and the regional companies to come and supply into Zimbabwe. Observers such as Mgano also say indications point toward the forced end of the multi-currency system and rejection of the Zimbabwean dollar altogether for VOA News in Blawayo, Zimbabwe. And that wraps up this edition of African News tonight.